You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, our text this morning is Psalm 33. Psalm 33, so I invite you to turn there with me. In the Pew Bibles, it should be page 463. Continue our exposition, psalm by psalm. We're charging through the first book, Psalms 1 through 41, as it focuses on God's kingship. God is king, and what that means for us in hard times and when we sense his blessing. We see that our king is a good king, A king who forgives, as we saw in Psalm 32. And here in Psalm 33, a king worthy of our praise. So let's turn our attention to the words of this king in Psalm 33, as we now hear God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible word given for you and for me this very day. Hear now Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashioned the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him. Because we trust in his holy name, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. In my fallible observations, I think people lean in varying degrees towards being one of two, having one of two fundamental dispositions. So think, which one are you? Where do you fall on the scale? On one side, there's a melancholy kind of person. 
Maybe you could say a sad person. The melancholy person feels every bump in the road. And for them, lament is a normal mode of operation for them. Even when that lament is not necessarily motivated by biblical reasons, such as seeing evil in the world and sin and the effects of corruption in our world. Sometimes this motivation for lament might simply be, life is hard and I don't like it, without reference to God at all. Well, this kind of melancholy person needs biblical laments to root and guide their expression of lament in their lives. Well, the other kind of person is the happy person, the person with a sunny disposition. And for this person, praise is more normal. It's their normal mode of operation, but even when it's not necessarily motivated by biblical reasons. There's reasons such as God's being, God's works of creation and providence, God's redemption, Christ, who he is. Sometimes it's motivated simply for self-centered reasons. And these people need biblical praise to properly ground their own praise. Both groups of people, the melancholy group and the happy group, and somewhere you probably fall somewhere along that continuum. Both of us, both groups, need the Psalms to help us calibrate our inner life, calibrate our hearts, or calibrate our laments and our praise in a rightly ordered way. And so this morning, whether you're that melancholy person who finds praise not regularly flowing from your lips, or whether you're a happy person, who always speaks of praise, we need this psalm, Psalm 33, a psalm which is a quintessential praise psalm to the king. And I want us to zoom in particularly on verse 21, so we consider it in the whole context of the psalm. But verse 21, and this particularly, our heart is glad in him. Considering this morning what biblical happiness is, what biblical gladness is, what joy is, as the psalm instructs us. Questions like, where does joy come from? This gladness come from? And how do we cultivate it? Our psalm instructs us, godly gladness is rooted in God himself, cultivated by faith in him, and is experienced in the fellowship of saints. It's rooted in God himself, cultivated by faith in him, and experienced in the fellowship of saints. Well, we'll look at those three points first, looking at godly gladness is rooted in God himself. And the operative phrase here in verse 21 is, our heart is glad, not generically, not generally, it is glad in him, in God. Our hearts are glad in God. And that's what this entire psalm has been speaking of. The first three verses and the last three verses are something like an introduction and a conclusion paired together. It's a call to worship and then a reflection on what this means for my life. But beyond the beginning and the end, this entire psalm is about God. It's focused on him, who he is, what he's done. I think Peter Craigie in his commentary has a great outline. And we're going to just briefly walk through this outline of what this psalm contains and how it all is about God. First, in verses four through nine, it's the Lord's word. How pure and righteous all of his words are. Everything he says, every utterance, everything he does is upright. The psalmist recounts creation from nothing by the mere word of God. He created it all good, all for his glory. And this leads to proper awe and respect for the power of God, even in his word. We're focused on God with his word. The next part, according to Craigie, is the Lord's 
plan, verses 11 through 12. There's a worldwide global plan to bless God's people. Now, this people was previously a geopolitical nation under the Mosaic Covenant, but now it's a new people, a holy nation, a people set apart from the world, not in a geopolitical sense, but in a religious and spiritual sense. This holy nation is now embedded in the nations throughout the entire world, coming together as a new people, a spiritual people as we are today. It's God's church that receives the blessings that the world may hate the church. We see in this section, God will protect her. The council of the nations is brought to nothing, according to verse 10, because God is preserving his people. You see, the focus relentlessly comes back to God. What is he doing? He's preserving us. He's blessing us. And ultimately, his people are the only blessed ones among all the people of earth. The third part is verses 13 through 15. The Lord's eye. The Lord sees all and he knows all. There's no place outside of his provision. So we can be assured that the blessing of his plan for his people will follow us wherever we might go. There's no escaping the purview of God's goodness. And then the final part, praising God, is verses 16 through 19. The Lord's might. The Lord's might. And he asks these questions, makes these wonderfully, wonderfully rich and deep poetic statements that amount to this. What are the great armies to God? The great military powerhouses of the world, what's that to God? What is the great strength of a warrior? What is a war horse? What is the atomic bomb? What is military intelligence? It is nothing compared to this one who sits in heaven. He is the one who has all might and power. Can we hope in any of these other things? Even if all of these great armies the great warriors, the war horse is trained against God's people. I can hear Paul retorting, if God is for us, who can be against us? The great might of God protecting and preserving his people and God's might is worthy of praise and trust. You have nothing worth hoping in comparing to him. This challenges us because what are we hoping in beyond the God of all might? What are we putting our trust in? Other than him, the Lord's might proves he is worthy of all trust. So these four sections go through different aspects of praising God and failing for us who God is. But I think there's something even more fundamental to this psalm than all of these things that the psalm is a response to. Fundamentally, this psalm is a response to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, you go back and you may remember this. It begins, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. He recounts the glorious grace of God in forgiving his people, all who trust in him. And in light of that, Psalm 33 comes right on the heels. It's interesting because Psalm 33, unlike every other psalm in the first book, except one and two, which are an introduction, Psalm 10 doesn't have a superscription because originally there's evidence that it was a part of Psalm 9. So Psalm 9 and 10 are one, one composition. We come here to then Psalm 33. It's the only psalm in the first book that does not have a superscription. Look at Psalm 32. It says, a mascal of David right at the beginning. But Psalm 33 has nothing of the sort. It doesn't say who wrote it. It doesn't say why he wrote it. It's embedded underneath Psalm 32 in a very important way. The psalms are not arranged haphazardly. They are arranged intentionally. And we see even more connection as we look at the end of Psalm 32. The words, righteous 
shout for joy and upright are in the final verse of Psalm 32 and they make an appearance again in Psalm 33, further connecting these two Psalms together. Psalm 33, most fundamentally, is a response to the grace of God in Christ. This is what praise looks like for those who are trained upon God, who know and experience the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And it's a response to shout for joy in the Lord. Because how can you not when you look to this God, this gracious one? The forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ leads us to adore God and to be glad in him. Godly gladness is rooted in God himself, who he is, and now as we see what he has done in Jesus Christ on the cross. There is a gladness that permeates the one who looks to that and understands these things. There's a gladness that is beyond circumstances, a gladness that does not fade when difficulties come our way. Gladness is rooted in God. And in fact, gladness returns to God as well as praise of his name. So if godly gladness is rooted in God himself, we see second that godly gladness is cultivated by faith in him. It's cultivated by faith in him. We see in verse 21, the second half comes in focus now. It says, first, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. We trust in his holy name. All of this, what is said about God, what is said about the forgiveness of sins, it means nothing for you personally and individually apart from that second part. Trusting in his holy name. That's how the God out there who is so great and majestic and mighty and sovereign and gracious and good now becomes your sovereign, majestic and good and mighty and forgiving God. It is that moment of trust. It is that moment of resting in him. I think it's interesting how it says we trust in his holy name. His holy name. Because oftentimes in the Old Testament and broadly this, uh, the cultural milieu in which the Israelites were, the name of somebody represents the very essence and character of that person. So here's trusting in the holy name of God, is trusting in God himself, the holy God of heaven and earth. Without trust, the psalmist effectively says, there is no gladness. No trust, no gladness. No faith, no gladness. Our heart is glad because we trust in his holy name. Reminds me of St. Augustine from the 400s, 300s and 400s AD, the Bishop of Hippo in Northern Africa, who made that famous statement to begin his confessions. Our heart is restless until it rests in you. Our heart is restless until it rests in you. That restlessness is antithetical to this kind of gladness that the psalmist speaks of. This restlessness ceases when there is now rest in Christ. This rest, he speaks of, is an equivalent of trust. The trust of which the psalmist speaks of as well. This kind of rest is not mere mental knowledge of God. That's right, you could read through Psalm 33 and say, yes, all these things are true. Mentally knowing this. It's not even going a step further and saying, yes, I believe that, I agree with that. 
assenting to the truth of God and in Christ. But the rest of which Augustine speaks of, the trust which the psalmist speaks of, goes beyond that to personally entrusting oneself to God. Personally entrusting oneself to God in light of these promises. That is trust and rest in him. Do you have a restless heart without Christ? Do you have a restless heart, a heart that cannot find any gladness beyond, and beyond superficial things? Your heart is restless until it finds its rest in him. Trust in this one, this Jesus who forgives sins in Psalm 32, who shows himself as greater than anything in the universe in Psalm 33, who is worthy of all of our praise. But the Christian life is continually taming that remaining restlessness. It's not like a poof is all gone. It reminds me of the man whose son was demon-possessed, who comes to Jesus in Mark chapter 9, and he comes to Jesus. Jesus says, do you, do you believe that I can cast these demons out? And the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. The restlessness isn't completely gone, but we are taming that restlessness by trusting in Christ, by coming back to the cross, by coming back to the one in whom we find eternal and ultimate rest. So the Christian life is continually taming that remaining restlessness, not by becoming better or somehow morally, uh, morally appropriate to receive God's blessing but in entrusting fully yourself more and more to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Every corner of your heart that you refuse to submit to him, that you refuse to entrust to him, maybe you entrust some things to him, but you don't trust the future of your children to him. You don't trust your, your own future, your financial future. What's going to happen when I get old? Will my children take care of me? Will I have num money to pay the bills? I'm not going to trust that to God. We need to. You are restless until you find your rest in all things in him. Until you trust in his holy name, there is no gladness of heart. A friend in 2016 took me on his private plane to General Assembly in Mobile, Alabama from Nashville, Tennessee. And so who doesn't want to ride on a private plane? This was amazing, right? A great opportunity to have to pay for a plane ticket, to have to pay for gas. It was wonderful. It sounded great until I saw what my friend, the pilot, later described once we were in midair, described the plane as a tin can with a propeller. That plane was as rinky-dink as they come. You show up and you realize this is not any kind of, of, of luxury jetliner. This is not a private jet. It's a private plane. There's a difference. There's room for two and four knees barely and our luggage barely in the back. And when I sat in that thing, I was terrified. Can this thing really get up in the air? And it's one thing to sit on the ground and say, sure, I believe that plane will fly, go fly it. It's a different thing to sit in that seat, buckle the seatbelt, close the door, and allow the pilot to take off. There's a difference between saying, yes, I believe theoretically that that plane will fly. There's a difference between that and saying, I'm gonna sit in this plane, buckle my seatbelt, and close the door. I'm entrusting myself to the airplane to take off. Thankfully, somehow, tin cans with propellers can fly. But it's, it was terrifying. And that, though, is what trust is. 
It's not theoretically saying, yes, Jesus can save people, but it's saying, I'm getting in, I'm buckling my seatbelt, I'm closing the door, I'm saying, this is my only hope. It is this Savior, Jesus Christ, that is fully entrusting ourselves to him. I love how our confession and our our membership vows that we just heard this morning uses the language of receiving and resting upon Christ. That's, the, that's, that's a synonym for this trust language, which is a synonym for faith. But I love how descriptive that is. Receive is something he's done. It's not something you're doing. And rest. Rest. Put your weight down upon it. Offer yourself and say, I have no hope. And so I'm completely buckling up and closing the door. Trusting this. Receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ. Then we experience the thrill of his steadfast love. Then the forgiveness of sins is no longer abstract. Then God's providential care for you in every part of your life is something that gives you peace. And you can look down the road 50, 40, 30, 20 years, whatever it is, and say, I trust God to provide for me. And even more than that, I trust God when I stand before him in heaven. The blood of Jesus Christ covers all my sins and I stand robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And as we receive and rest upon Christ, we have the privilege of what verse 22 does. Approaching like a child, this mighty and glorious heavenly father. Verse 22 says, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you even as we hope, even as we're waiting for you, as it said earlier in verse 20. May your steadfast love be upon us. That's a child who comes to a good father, says, oh, bless me, help me. I need you, a life of dependence, coming to our good heavenly father every moment. As we trust him, we again say over and over, I need you. Our hearts will not be glad if we refuse to wholeheartedly trust him. It's one thing to to theoretically assent to Jesus Christ, say, yes, Jesus is the savior of sinners, but it's something entirely different to receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. So godly gladness is cultivated by faith in him. And then we see finally here, godly gladness is experienced in the fellowship of saints the fellowship of saints. Look at verse 21 again. It says, for our heart is glad. Our heart, that's interesting. Our, plural, all of us, collective. Our heart, one heart. And it does this again, back up in verse 20. Our soul. And then verse 22, it speaks of the steadfast love of the Lord be upon us, even as we hope in you. There's a communal reality that we enter into when we come to Christ by faith. Individual faith leads us to a collective experience of God's grace. There's another way to say it. There are no thriving Lone Ranger Christians. God did not design us to be Lone Ranger Christians. God designed us to be integrally connected to the fellowship of the saints, to be together as a body, to commit to one another, to have authority and and people looking out for me. 
This is what God has called us to do, and we experience great blessing in that. And this is why at Redeemer, we put a premium on church membership. Why we do believe it's so important to be a member here or elsewhere, be a part of the body of Christ. There are no thriving Lone Ranger Christians. Because if you're a Lone Ranger Christian, you can't say song, verse 21 and 20. You can't say, our soul waits for the Lord. You might say, my soul. But you're missing the richer dynamic that this is a collective experience that we all share together. Some of this is experienced individually, one-on-one with other believers. Sometimes you can go to mature, godly believers in your own church and call upon them in a time of difficulty, a shoulder to cry upon, people who can be there and help and encourage you. This is one wonderful way that individually we, we help one another and we can say our hearts, our heart is glad even individually within the church. But I think there's an even more profound element here that we often pass up. And that is the corporate element of our joy together, of our gladness together, our need for corporate worship. We need corporate worship. We need to be bound together to the communion of saints. We need to come together and raise our voices as one. We need to come and unite our hearts in in confessing what we believe together. We need one another. And we do this together in this place. We can't let that pass us up. We can't think this is just something a lot of individual people like to do. We come together and then we scatter and go do our own things. We come here together. We come here to unite together. We come here not as a bunch of individuals, but we come together as the one body of Christ. We can't let this pass us over. And especially in the highs and lows of life, in those moments where you're overjoyed, in the moments where you're at the bottom of the pit, you need to be here more than anything else. And as I say this to all of you, I say this to me as well. We need to be here. We need to hear God's promises spoken over us week in and week out. We need to come to that table where Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. We need all of the lies of Satan to be yelled out of our mind that we believe that the world speaks to us every single day. We need to come here because this is where God builds up his people. This is where we have communion with one another. This is where we can together after the service say, isn't God so good? Look what he's doing in my life. Let me hear what he's doing in yours. We need the communion of saints. We need the fellowship of God's people. Our growth together, as the Psalm points us, our growth together will be marked, yes, by walking through hard things together. Yes, it'll be marked by going to funerals together. It'll be marked by difficulties and and medical problems and hospital visits, yes, but it will be even more than that, marked by joy together, marked by gladness together. Even in the pit, we can remind each other of the gospel of grace, of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We can encourage and build one another up individually and corporately. Godly gladness is experienced in the fellowship saints. Are you glad today? Are you glad? That doesn't mean you're in an emotional state of ecstasy, but it means that you know God. You know his promises for you, and you are fighting tooth and nail to put your trust fixed upon him, and you belong to God's people who will help you with that. That's 
ultimately what gladness looks like for us, for all of God's people. So as this psalm does, as we've sung it already, as it's been prayed for us, as we've read it, this psalm trains our eyes, not on ourselves, not on our situation, not on our circumstances. It trains our eyes on the God of promise, on the Jesus Christ who died and rose again to fulfill these promises. And so we will respond to that call to shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. And then by God's grace, our soul will wait for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart will be glad in him because we trust in his holy name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Gracious God, we confess that our hearts are not always glad, but we thank you that you build us up in Christ as you show us your goodness, as you build us in faith through your means of grace and you bring us together as your people. And so we are glad, O Lord. We are glad in these things and our hearts sing your praises. You're glorious and majestic. And we thank you for your grace for us poor sinners. In Christ's name we pray. For listening, for more information or to connect with us, visit us at redeemerohio.org.